Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Laszlo Montgomery again. Thankful and appreciative as ever that you're tuning in to the China History Podcast. We're back with part two of this little set course meal overview of the history of the Jews who found refuge in China, particularly in the first half of the 20th century. I know part one was a little heavy on the appetizers. I assure you there will be more flonking in this episode. Last time we looked at the Harbin Jewish community in China and how so many Jews ended up there. Now, these Russian Jews came to escape the persecution during the many pogroms and also during the building of the China Eastern Railway. These events busted things wide open at the start of the 20th century and turned Harbin from an obscure fishing village of no great consequence to the most important city in all of Manchuria. Jews also came to Harbin as demobilized soldiers who fought in the Russo-Japanese War. Then later, in 1917, these Russian and Ukrainian Jews, along with their occasional tormentors, the white Russians, also came in great numbers in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution. They not only went to Harbin, these Russians also ended up en masse in the French concession in Shanghai. And as I mentioned, this community of Jews up in the city of Harbin was a good 30,000 strong at its peak around 1930. And a common theme throughout the period where Jews lived side by side with the local Chinese, they seemed to get on swell. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to mention something, just, just an anecdote from history, but certainly relevant to what we talked about last time. Back in 1903, just when the China Eastern Railway began service. The New York Chinatown community threw a charity event to raise money for the Jewish victims of the Kishnev pogroms. Now, Kishnev used to be a metaphor where I grew up for someplace out in the middle of nowhere. Well, today, it's the capital of the Republic of Moldova, but back in 1903, it was the scene of one of the more vicious pogroms carried out against the Jewish inhabitants living there inside the Russian Empire. It got quite a bit of press in the U.S., and the New York Chinatown fathers, upon reading about what happened, all put their heads together and decided to do something to create some awareness and extend a hand of friendship and solidarity to the New York Jewish community. One of the Chinese locals, a man named Joseph Singleton, in the name of the Chinese Empire Reform Association, approached members of the Jewish community about throwing a benefit performance at the Chinese theater, followed up by a dinner at the Chinese Delmonico's, 24 Pell Street. It was a big joint in its day. This is all in New York Chinatown. Joseph Singleton's Chinese name was Zhao Wansheng, very interesting figure from the early days of New York Chinatown history. Scott Seligman wrote a piece in the September 2011 China Heritage Quarterly, put out by ANU, Australia National University. It was called The Night New York's Chinese Went Out for the Jews. It was a fun evening. Chinese performers all donated their services, and leaders from both communities gave speeches and solidarity denouncing the persecution going on in Russia, as well as speaking to the shared suffering the Jews and Chinese have had in the past. And the Jewish press had always spoken out against Chinese exclusion, which was the law of the land at the time. Anyway, it was a nice evening for the two communities who, of course, knew of each other, but didn't mix too often, if at all. 
And they raised almost 300 bucks for the Kishinev Jews, and I'm sure everyone knew it was the thought that counts. So anyway, I wanted to mention this. I'll have a link to uh, Scott Seligman's article in the show notes. Sounded like a hell of a night. Anyway, in part two, we're going to relive that history you're all probably quite familiar with, especially if you're nearing my advanced age. This is the lead up to World War II, those years in the 1930s. Let's get started with today's story and take it as far as we can within the allotted time limit, of course. After the Mukden incident, 9-18-31, and the shakeup in Manchuria caused by Japan's aggression up there, including the establishment of Manchukuo in 1932, the wonderful and rich life the Jewish refugees built for themselves that thrived throughout the 1920s in Harbin started to wind down. The drums of war were just starting to slowly, slowly beat, and it was time to leave this rich and refined world they had built and find a less hostile place, if it existed. Now, not everyone left, but most did. And though many went to Shanghai, many also left China altogether, including to Palestine. A lot went there, and this is going to cause all kinds of problems later on with the uh, local inhabitants. A good number of Harbin Jews, however, headed 1,200 kilometers to the southwest in the direction of Tianjin. Now, as far as the story of the Tianjin Jews, the first ones were the Sephardim, the Jews of Spain, North Africa, and the Middle East, also known as the Mizrahi Jews, like their fellow Baghdadi Jews down in Shanghai, like the Sassoons, these Jews came to Tianjin right after the Opium War. The Sassoons came after the first Opium War, and the first Tianjin Jews came after the 1858 Treaty of Tianjin following the Second Opium War. Now, this treaty turned Tianjin into one of the new 11 treaty ports open for business. Now, Tianjin is just a little bit east of Beijing, and even today is one of the major seaports of North China. Aside from these Baghdadi traders, as far as any significant Jewish presence went, Tianjin didn't really start to take off until the 1920s. The Sephardim comprised the first wave of Jews to Tianjin. The major growth began with the second wave, who all came from Russia. They either came to Tianjin via Harbin in the early 1930s, or came directly from Russia for the same basket of reasons that chased the Jews to Harbin. The Tianjin community didn't even start to build a synagogue until the 1930s. Not that the majority of the Tianjin Jews were regular attendees, but, you know, for the high holidays at least, the, the community always came together at some rented venue somewhere in one of the eight foreign concessions. As with Little Moscow up in Harbin, the Jews of Tianjin had their own little Jewish town. It was the Jewish version of any Chinatown anywhere in the world, complete with a benevolent association. It was called the Tianjin Hebrew Association, established in 1905 and duly registered with the Russian Imperial Consulate throughout the years of the Jewish presence in Tianjin. The board of this institution and the respected elders of the community would see to the needs of the refugees and other Jewish residents of Tianjin. Names like Gershevich and Zandevich were the were the Sassoons and Kaduris of Tianjin, and not necessarily in wealth, but in influence, leadership, and participation within the community. 
and the Jewish Kunst or Arts Club became another organization that brought the community together and became sort of a, a center for everything. A lot of get-togethers happened there. There are so many photos taken that survive. And the best joint to go grab a bite in Tianjin was the Victoria Cafe. And with the concentration of educated and professional residents like it was, the town was full of Jewish-run newspapers and journals. And they made a life for themselves there. The Tianjin Jewish community received its biggest boost in residence after the Bolsheviks came to power. The population grew to over 600 families, up from the 10 that made up the community back in 1904. Israel Epstein, whose incredible life was covered in CHP episode Four Famous Westerners interred at Babaoshan Cemetery, was one of these Tianjin Jews. Now, historically, Israel Epstein was perhaps the best known of these Jewish residents of Tianjin. He arrived with his family from Warsaw in 1920. He, too, got chased out of Poland for similar reasons as others of his kind. Tianjin Jews tended to concentrate in the fur and leather trade there. The city had become a major trading port for the fur industry. There was a very brisk trade in these Manchurian furs and animal skins going on between Tianjin and Leipzig and New York. They had the same vigorous Zionist organizations down in Tianjin as they had up in Harbin. And all throughout this period, there were many Jews there who were resettled in Palestine. You know, all of this history that happened in Tianjin, thankfully, 1920s and 30s, 90 years ago, and it wasn't like the Tang Dynasty. Such a great amount of material has survived that chronicled this world the Jewish refugees created for themselves. Many of these former Tianjin residents, Baruch Hashem, are still living and have written books and documented their stories. There are a lot of photos and public and private collections that chronicles the Tianjin Jewish community during this period. The community peaked in 1935 with about 3,500 Jewish residents. And the most amazing thing, I guess, that I took away from reading all the books and looking at the pictures was how normal everything looked. I mean, you got to admit, this is pretty extraordinary. Whole families being uprooted and coming to this unlikely part of the world. I mean, for an Ashkenazi Jew, anyway. And not only making a life there, but bringing their whole Jewish, Russian, and European culture along for the ride and getting it all recreated in Tianjin or Harbin or Shanghai, wherever they went. This is what they did, the Jews, after they got settled in China. I'm only mentioning Harbin, Tianjin, and Shanghai. There were others as well, including in Hong Kong. In each place, the Jewish residents banded together and used everything their Yiddish culture and upbringing had taught them up to that point to truly make the best of a bad situation. Amidst all the 1930s history we all know about, in their small communities in these big cities in China, the Jewish people still produced literature, theater, and art, and, well, this kept the heart beating all throughout this period. And children were born there and grew up and had, from the photos at least, about as normal a life as any expat kid. I mean, looking at the photos, unless you saw Chinese writing or people in the background, you'd hardly know they were in China. 
They went to Jewish and non-Jewish schools, played organized sports, and engaged in all manners of social activities and clubs. And not just the kids, the adults and elderly as well. And since Tianjin was so close to Beit Aichhe, that famous getaway spot of today's CCP top leaders, that too became a special place for Tianjin families to vacation at. Many of the buildings and landmarks where this Jewish community once thrived are still there. Many of the former residents have come back as tourists to visit Tianjin, and they had the chance to reminisce and even see old Chinese friends who welcomed them in the 1930s and 40s and who were their friends 80 and 90 years ago. Up to now, we've mainly focused on Acts 1 and 2 in the history of the Jewish refugees in China. Act 1 in the modern history of the Jews in China began with the Sephardim, who mainly came from Iraq by way of India and became part of the elites in the foreign establishment. Act 2 involved the Russian Jews and everything they created up in Harbin and Tianjin. If I may, I'd like to move on to Act 3. Now, maybe this is the history you're more familiar with because it concerns the European Jews, Hitler, the Nazis, and World War II. This is where the numbers of Jews fleeing to China starts to swell, and the stories of survival get a little bit more dramatic. As we continue on with our overview of the Jewish refugees in China, we can also revisit all the well-known milestones that led up to the invasion of Poland, 9-1-1939. If I had to choose one milestone in particular that really got the ball rolling, it'd have to be in January 1933, when Hitler became chancellor. Now, Hitler hadn't become Hitler yet, but with his accession to the chancellorship, the more astute of Germany's half million or so Jews knew they had a problem on their hands. By March 1933, a couple months later, Heinrich Himmler was already putting the finishing touches on his pride and joy over in Dachau. The next month saw the first of many laws passed directed against non-Aryans, a new code name for the Jews. In July, still in the year 1933, with the wealthier Jews already starting to leave, Germany instituted the Reichflüster, the Texas for Fleeing the Reich, a handy way to shake down Jews on their way out the door, and pretty much for the rest of the year using the precision and efficiency the Germans are renowned for. The Jews, through all kinds of regulations and being hated on by the local populace, began to become isolated in their own country. Nazi propaganda was omnipresent. Leni Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will was 1935, Berlin Olympics 1936, you've seen the pictures. All the work that came out regarding race science and the superiority of one race over another, that was all happening too. Over in America, well, we were still in FDR's first term and still reeling from the depression hangover. We had our own problems. From the moment Hitler came to power... German Jews were powerless to stop anyone from confiscating their property. Laws and regulations would be announced that directly or indirectly deprived them of earning a livelihood. And men were just now starting to be taken away, locked up in camps. As early as November of 1933, 
the first of many German Jews, arrived as refugees in Shanghai. Only about 26 families. They did well getting out as early as they did. Many among these early arrivals were professionals and educated, and thereby able to start a new life rather quickly. Many also got out early and took the Trans-Siberian Railway to Manchukuo and found refuge in Harbin. As our story unfolds, we see the next 30,000 or so to follow in the direction of Shanghai will have a little bit rougher of a voyage than those who preceded them. Then in November 1935 came the Nuremberg Laws, and that further exacerbated the Jews' isolation. And two years into Hitler's chancellorship, the German Jews and others were looking around and wondering, when was this madness going to end? When were people going to see through all this propaganda, bombast, and lies of this regime and wake up from this insanity? Well, little did they know it was only just getting started. 1936-1937 was relative calm before the storm that 1938 ended up being for European Jews. March 1938, the Anschluss, Germany annexed Austria. The 200,000 or so Jews who called that place home were targeted for the same persecution that Germany's Jews were going through. Austrian Jews, they had to pick up and leave also. And to China... Many of them went. August through November 1937 was the horrific and bloody Battle of Shanghai. Things were already quite tense in China since the Marco Polo Bridge incident a month before. But once the Japanese vessel Izumo was bombed on August 14th, the Second Sino-Japanese War began with consequences that affected everyone, everywhere in China, Jewish refugees included. The Battle of Shanghai made it to all the newsreels and all the major cities of the world. So everyone knew it wasn't a safe place by the looks of the bombed-out buildings. And who could forget the iconic grainy black-and-white image of the crying baby all by itself amidst the rubble. The story of the Jewish refugees in Shanghai can't be told without a mention about the Chinese refugees of Shanghai. When Japan unleashed the full fury of their military might on the good people up and down the Yangtze River, a lot of inhabitants of these towns in Zhejiang and Jiangsu looked to Shanghai as the safest place to wait out the worst of what was happening. With all those foreigners there and Chinese military presence, they figured they'd be safe in Shanghai. And so that's where a lot of Chinese headed. And not just poor villagers either, industrialists as well. They packed up their old factories and moved it all to Shanghai. So in mentioning about the Jewish and other refugees fleeing to Shanghai, they weren't alone. The Chinese refugees in Shanghai, their numbers were the greatest, as was the extent of their misery and suffering. So after December 1937 was out of the way and all that horrific blood was spilled and the rape of Nanjing had already happened, The Japanese had a four-year period between this moment and when they bombed Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. This was the period of undeclared war in China. My podcasting brother, Ray Harris Jr., is covering this event now in his History of World War II podcast, if I may humbly recommend that very popular show, The Pacific War Just Underway. So, 
1937 turned to 1938, in Shanghai, a whole interrelated dynamic emerged where no one was really in charge. I mean, Japan was clearly the most potent military presence in Shanghai, but they didn't control the whole city or the levers of government. They took over parts of the city, I mean, most notably the Hongkou district, parts of which became known as Little Tokyo. A Chinese-administered bureaucracy was put in place to handle basic services, but they now worked for the Japanese. Remember, at this stage of the game, Germany and China still had friendly relations. Purchase orders from the Chinese military for German armaments were and had been for years very substantial. Like it is with weapon sales, nobody on either side wanted to mess with something that was very important to both parties. As the countdown to 1941 gets closer, the Germany-China relationship gets more complicated. For now, everybody's neutral. The most interesting thing as far as our story is concerned is that passport controls under these conditions sort of broke down. Nobody was checking anything, which meant for any Jew looking to escape from Europe, if worse came to worst, this could be an option. Desperate and unpleasant as it was, surely in the eyes of many a European. But if one was stateless, in the case of these German and Austrian Jews, this crazy idea wasn't so crazy. By 1937, the exodus of Jews from Europe was really starting to become an inconvenience for many nations. How to deal with all these Jews vacating Germany and Austria? And not just those two countries, Hungarian and Romanian Jews, too, were also on the run. The same or similar policies being meted out on German and Austrian Jews were also happening in Central Europe as well. Yeah, those were not easy years for everyone caught up in the history happening all around them. What to do? By 1937, everyone who counted themselves personally part of the Jewish problem, as it was called in official circles, had to pick out a place to flee to. Comparatively speaking, it was easier to get out of Germany before 1937. Those who opted out early got to leave with a good portion of their wealth and moved on to wherever, away from Germany and Austria. Although there were European Jews already heading to China, they weren't coming in droves. Not yet. 1938 is going to change all that. And it's going to be in 1938 that we pick up next time. Yeah, I'm cutting it a little short, but I got news for you. All the heads of all the different departments, the investors and others who have a stakeholding in the CHP, came out with a pronouncement that said, starting with this episode, they demand at least two shows per month. And if I have to decrease the portions, so be it. Well, I'm a company man, so that's the way it's going to be from here on out until kingdom come. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off from Los Angeles, California. I'll be back in a couple weeks with part three, the traumatic and frightful year of 1938, and our little overview of the history of the Jewish refugees in China. See you next time. Take care, everyone.